This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. You know, I was thinking the other day, in anticipation of today's episode, that we've all had that feeling, you know, walking out of a movie theater, feeling exhilarated, inspired, in wonderment about what we've just witnessed. I know that's not all the time, but you know those times when that happens. For me, it's like when I walk out of a movie like that, I, I can't, I can't get in a car. I can't get on a subway. I can't, I have to walk <laughs> because what's just happened to me has been almost an out of body uh, experience. My mind is spinning with ideas and emotions, but for all the glitz and glamor of Hollywood and the incredible actors, the special effects, the costumes, the makeup, the common denominator in every great film that you or I have seen and every wonderful experience that we've had walking out of that movie theater, the one common denominator is great writing. It all begins with great writing. I know maybe you've heard that it's a cliche by now, but it is the truth. And one of the great Hollywood screenwriters of our time, is our guest today, Eric Roth. Eric Roth, these are just a few of his writing credits. A Star is Born, the the most recent one with Bradley Cooper and uh, Lady Gaga. Extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, One of really my favorite films of all time, and we're going to talk a bit about that. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Good Shepherd, Munich, Ali, The Insider, The Horse Whisperer, The Postman, and the screenplay for which he won an Academy Award for in 1994, uh, the little-known but well-regarded Forrest Gump. Uh, Eric has also written screenplays for what I believe are two of the most highly anticipated films in our upcoming post-pandemic world. And these two films are Dune, yes, Dune, finally, Dune, that with the Dune we've been waiting for. But the other movie that I have been waiting for, if you have been a listener of this podcast since the uh, second episode, uh, I believe, when our guest was Robert De Niro. And he talked about this film that he hoped that they would uh, be doing. And on my way out of his uh, office, he gave me a copy of the book, which uh, is becoming the movie. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon. It's being directed by Martin Scorsese and will star Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. But today, right now, there's a movie out that Eric Roth has helped to make, and not as a writer, not as a screenwriter, but as a producer. And you've heard me talk about this movie for the past number of weeks on Rumble, one of my favorite films of the year, Mank. Mank was directed by David Fincher and was written by Fincher's late father, Jack Fincher. Uh, In this film, Mank, 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of a scathing social critic and somewhat alcoholic screenwriter named Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane for Orson Welles. 
The film stars Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried. It also features the wonderful music of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Mank, my friends, is truly one of the best films I've seen this year. It's available now. You can see it on Netflix. It has 10, in fact, 10 Academy Award nominations for this year's Oscars, including, obviously, Best Picture, Best Actor, that's Gary, Best Supporting Actress, that's Amanda, Costume, Makeup, Score. It's just every one of them a deserving nomination. And I am honored to have its producer and one of our great screenwriters on today's podcast. Please welcome Eric Roth. Eric, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm surviving. You know, I, uh, I've made it through. I got my vaccinations. I got to hug my grandchildren, at least a few yes, of them. And yes. they all said enough, Papa. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I mean. Here I, we are. Yeah, I, but I, the other day I went out and all of a sudden there was fucking traffic. You know, it's like, maybe it's better <laughs> to be in sanctuary here. I don't know. Right, and, right. But, but certainly it, it gets people back to work and all things that matter. Right, right. But it would have been nice had we gotten some sort of uh, um, magic wand waved over us a year ago and you could have driven down the 405 at 90 miles an hour exactly. and, not, and not a car in sight. That's exactly. We, we were taking a, we have a place, a very rural place in Montana and we drove, we drove and uh, stopped and just to go to the bathroom or something in Las Vegas. And I, I literally walked down the middle of uh, the, the strip, not without a car in sight. Wow. Yes. No. Like, you know, a bad, a bad uh, just, uh, just topic movie. So let me, let me just start off by asking you this, cause I have going to try to get through all this. I have a number of questions I want to ask you about, uh, previous films. So let's start with Mank. And, and th- the first question maybe is just the obvious question. Um, so you're, you're nominated for this year's Oscars as a producer yeah. of, of the best picture nominee Mank. And it is a film about a screenwriter. And yet you, and you are, <laughs> you are a screenwriter, but you are not nominated for this. So you've been nominated, I think for four, four best pictures that have been nominated for best picture were written by you. So how does, I don't know. How does this feel? David Fincher and I are best friends with the life, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, great collaborators. Great. We fight like cats and dogs. And, um, uh, we did Benjamin button together and he's always asked me to give my God's honest about his movies at some point and then tells me to shut up, you know, but, uh, mm-hmm. um, and he's, uh, he's a man of, uh, uh, incredible gifts. Um, and, uh, he, um, he came to me and said, you know, my father wrote this screenplay a number of years ago. His dad is, his dad's been gone for, I think 16, 17 years. And he said, I would love to see if we can keep it intact as much as possible. Let's have his voice heard. And yet how can we do this with, uh, you know, without messing around with the script and, uh, you know, rewriting it to death and everything else. And uh, so I said, let me read it. <laughs> you know? And I, I read it and I said, I think this is like 85, 90% there. I said, I think we, you know, do due diligence. And he said, well, if you will do this with me, kind of be another's eyes and ears and also utilize whatever knowledge you have of screenwriting, which is a lot and of uh, Hollywood, which is too much. Um, uh you know, how about you produce a movie? I said, I don't, you know, I don't know producing anything. I did. I, I know how to produce television shows. I did house of cards and stuff, but that's was strictly me with the writers. And so this was a new world. And, 
I took it seriously, you know, and I went every day and learned everything I could and, you know, became, I think, close with all the great craftspeople he has. He has almost a stock company of craftspeople, much less actors. And um, so I think I actually deserve the credit, you know, I think I worked and earned it. And um, uh, right. I said about this movie, and I'll, I'll shut up about it if you want, but uh, it's, as close to, it's as close to, I think, a work of art that I've been involved with. Yes, it is definitely that. And and I can see exactly why he would want you to be the producer of this, because as one of our greatest living screenwriters, to have your your eyes and ears, your hands, your whatever there as as his you know i don't want to say backup but but just as collaborator yeah we well we we did we was we so anyway like you know x amount of months before things were supposed to begin we started zooming every morning or whatever uh, facetiming 5 36 in the morning and david's a big taskmaster and we went line for line you know is this line in the right wow. place and i but we were always sort of uh, obliged to keep as best we can everything he did. And there, there was very little I, I did. I mean, I think most was actually within kosher with like the, even the writer's deal where you're allowed to, as a producer, do what they call A through H writing, um, which right. is just transposing things and editing, but not, right, right. you know, not really doing anything of any uh, consequence that way. And I think we, and, and I think it was also a way for David to relearn the script, find what the rhythms of it were and, David's incredibly logical. He wants one yeah. one thought to follow another, and I'm a little more fanciful, so that that was part of our arguments. But uh, mm. he would always win because it's his first mm. movie, uh, it's his dad's movie. And anyway, that was sure. uh, that was where um, you know I came in for you know trying to protect and trying to uh, you know enhance the screenplay where I could, and, and certainly with David, uh, David and I did it together. We you know sort of read it together uh, as well. I had Aaron Sorkin on this podcast a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and he would not stop talking about the genius of David Fincher. And here they're, they're both, both of their films are up for best picture. Yeah, this well, year. I mean, David, um, and then uh, and he'll, he'll, he'll want to vomit if he hears me talk too long about him. But uh, <laughs> he, um, he is a really rare, rare bird. He, he, I don't even know if he finished high school, um, mm -hmm. but he has, mm -hmm. he, there's a, a, a I don't want to say Rain Man quality about there is a savant quality about him that's particularly uh, you know in sometimes infuriating, but on the other other hand, it's uh, it's breathtaking what he knows not only about uh, making films, which is something one could learn or even at least have the art artistry for, but he also has a great well of knowing uh, human behavior, how to mm. how to how to pick out your worst and most uh, uh, insecurities. <laughs> You know, he, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's brazen and he's outrageous and he's also, uh, he's particularly human in so many ways. Anyway, he's, uh, uh, I mean, I, we can talk about a lot of directors I've worked with and I would say David would be at the pinnacle and right with him would be Marty, you know, people I've worked with and I've worked, yeah. I work with everybody from Kurosawa through Steven Spielberg, you know, et cetera. So David is, yeah. uh, Aaron is right to feel that he's kind of a national treasure. I would certainly agree with that. And you have worked with these other national treasures, not just in this country, but as you said, from Kurosawa to Spielberg, which is how I'm, I often ask, you know, when I'm on Colbert or whatever to introduce me in that fashion, if they could just say, okay. he's worked with from Kurosawa to Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, that's, from, that's, 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 you know, the, here's the, here's the thing. If you're going to get me, that's the kind of thing that, 
you get you get choked up about because you know you're going to be in that in memoriam on the Oscars one day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like oh boy. <laughs> right. No, but it's but it's true for you. It's that that and and you know so we yes you've worked with Scorsese and Spielberg and Kurosawa, Michael Mann. Um, who's the French Canadian uh, guy? He's great. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, okay. I mean, amazing visual. Yeah. Amazing. But you know, we, the public hears about this sort of screenwriter director back and forth, we'll call it. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting position to be in. And those of us who make movies, we understand now. And of course, you know, most of my movies obviously are documentaries, but you know, I've always felt like a writing credit, the WGA should create a category for the editor because the editor of a documentary, we have no script. We're, he's he or she is not in the edit room. Absolutely right. Absolutely. With a screenplay that they're following, they're they are having to help write this with me. Uh, at, after we've shot it, even more complicated is that you know uh, they are very protective about credits, which they should be. And but you will have two or three people who don't know each other from Adam, you know, writing and rewriting each other, and then they decide after they all feel they may have deserved credit on it. So then there's a fight for credit, which is not pretty. Um, and I've right. always advocated, and some people agree with me, some don't, that they should have at least an additional writing credit so it reflects honestly that other people had done some work on it. Yeah, I've, I've just decided I'm going to try to get this through the Writers Guild uh, to acknowledge editors of documentaries. But if and if I don't, then I'm just going to find a way to do it anyways in the credits because I feel like I need to share that. Yeah, no, I get that. My my daughter's a documentarian. She actually won an Oscar for a short documentary. And uh, I know that how she relies on her editor. Yes, it's, yeah. um, but the, so what I said in the beginning in introducing you about the one thing to understand as you leave any great movie, as you leave the theater, is that this, this no way could this have happened, no matter how great the acting was. If, if the story uh, didn't ring true if the story had a false narrative or any time when you can see it, when you can see the film doing that, you've been taken out of watching the movie. You're no longer in the suspension of, of you know, you're now present and, and noticing the movie. That's right. When we don't want you to notice the movie, we want you to be lost in the story. Well, Francis Coppola said it always great. He said, if you're watching the chandelier, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Right. That's always truth. In other words, that uh, if you're paying attention to, I mean, one of the great examples of, uh, um, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, do you? No, uh, no, 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 please. The great examples of, I always thought about this movie, a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Million Dollar Baby. So mm, he, yeah. he was saving money and um, he literally staged, I think, four or five fight scenes in the very same location. I think he did it down here at a place where it used to be called the Olympic Auditorium. Anyhow, and all he would do was he would put a new sign up on the wall that said, uh, uh, you know, uh, Albuquerque Fight Club or something. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. if you're in a different place, but if, if, you, if you're, you know, invested in the story, would you give? You didn't care, you know? No, no. And in fact, if your eye did see Albuquerque Fight, Fight Club, that's exactly where you believed you were. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Because you are subconsciously trusting the film at that, at that that's point. Right. That's right. If, if it's not a good film, I mean, this is one of my great examples for myself is like uh, the film Primary Colors. Do you remember this? Mike Nichols? Very well. Film. Yes. So it's a film. It's it's based on a fictional version of Clinton 
uh, running for the first time for president and, and with, you know, Hillary by his side and, um, and, and written by and anonymous written. Yes. Written by somebody who I don't know. Yeah. Well, we know anonymous. now, I think, but anyway, now we know. Yes. Now we know. And then I'm, and I'm looking at the, the trailer or the ad and starring John Travolta as Bill Clinton. And I remember, I remember saying, Oh, I don't want to go see that. That's not going to work. I mean, I love John Travolta, but yeah. John Travolta, I'm supposed to believe he's, he's Clinton, yeah. but that, that, but I have to say, now maybe this isn't true for you or anybody else. 10 minutes into that movie, because it was so well-written and directed by Mike Nichols and acted by, I forgot that that was Travolta. Right. right. I was not thinking that he was going to bust a move in the next five seconds. Right. I, I believe that that was Bill Clinton. And, and I remember thinking afterwards, man, that boy, the power of a good film that can transport you like that. And you literally never think that that's Travolta again during the rest of well, the I think uh, I think that, uh, uh, not to sound pretentious, but I think that is, the writer does that to, to nth degree. And that it's all, I think it's a, a, a large matter of probably two or three things. One, certainly passion. Um, and some, and then two, a belief that you're telling some truth, you know, even if you know it's complete bullshit. Um, and third, I think that uh, with God being in the details, that you then have the details and research to back almost everything up you want to have come out as true. Um, right. I mean, I think I, I don't. I don't want to misquote him, but Jim Cameron says something to the effect that a lot of his science was kind of. Uh, you know, made up science, but he gave it such credence that you believed it. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so, right. And so that worked, you know, whether it was like in Terminator, the guys, uh, you know, becoming whatever transparent. Anyway, uh, there is an art to that too. Um, and, the, and the more skillful, but also the more, I think the biggest thing I always believed, and I, I think you have to, uh, in movies that work, uh, you've earned, you've earned your, the emotion the audience have, you've earned the, uh, the laughter, you've earned everything that, uh, uh, that, that becomes important about it. If you haven't earned it, you're going to be in trouble. So um, watching Mank, not knowing what to expect, trusting who uh, the uh, director was, looked like a good cast, you know, and, but there's certain sacred cows that you don't want anybody fucking with. And I would say Citizen Kane would be right, one of those. Right. So I come into it at the beginning with that apprehension. I leave the end of the movie and I didn't realize this until two weeks later. I just happened to have Turner classic movies on and there's the host, the grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, yeah, Ben Mankiewicz. Yeah, ben Mankiewicz, yeah. Yes. And they are, they are now going to play Citizen Kane. And I start to watch the film. And I know this is going to sound like sacrilege. And um, if, if there's a 12-step program for me, uh, please <laughs> let me know what, let, what it is. But what I'm about to say, I don't know where it was in the movie. It was fairly early on, but certainly by the time it got to Marion Davies. And I had to stop watching it because the film Citizen Kane no longer rang true for me. And the depiction of Marion Davies after seeing Amanda's depiction mm. of Marion Davies in, in Mank, 
and the story behind the story of telling this, the the uh, relationship that Mankiewicz had with with William Randolph Hearst, yes. upon whom Charles Foster Kane is based in Citizen Kane, uh, um, presented a whole new. I don't even think perspective is strong enough of a word. I was I was by in by watching Mank. I again felt transported to the world of Hollywood in the late thirties and early forties. Um, but also instead of, I'd hate to, I'd hate to say this in, and um, you know, apologies to Orson Welles if he's listening, <laughs> but, uh, but this seemed more authentic. Am, am I wrong in saying that? I don't know. And because I'm worried now that I, I can't, I can't ever, heard, I'm worried. I can't watch Citizen Kane again. Well, your biggest problem is you can't take it back. <laughs> so I can't take it back. That's right. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd use inauthentic. I mean, I think because there are, there's very, there's a lot of important things in that movie in particular that hadn't, as far as I, which, which movie now are you talking about, about? Citizen Kane? Um, okay. Which had never, as far as I can recall in my, in my fairly extensive uh, film, you know, cinephile uh, uh, spot. I, I mean, that was the first movie, uh, maybe a Russian movie, but that, showed somebody from different perspectives. They always, they always yes. do it from one. The only other one that was kind of famous was a thing called the bad and the beautiful. that just did four perspectives. No, it's all about Kirk Douglas being a sort of a, a rotten producer or something. But um, uh, that, I mean, and that's sort of was what kicked off some of the things we had to say, or, you know, David's father said about, you know, you can't, you can't do somebody's whole life in two hours. You can only give an impression of it. And so then you then get into all these sort of mini uh, mini impressions of what people who what was their relationship to, you know, Citizen Kane or Charles, you know, Charles Forster Kane or for, to William Randolph first as it was. Um, and how did these people look at him? And then you have all these different points of view, which is what I think was a genius of uh, um, one of the things that was genius about the um, uh, direction and the screenplay, obviously. And then I think on top of this, this whole psychological notion which seems a little bit um sort of sim uh, simplistic now but the idea of rosebud uh, something being right. so important to the you know our traumas and everything else in life i think it was underplayed but i think there was a freudian quality to that's pretty spectacular you know right right so i, I would well, say that too so inauthentic i i mean i don't know that's a tough one i mean one of the we we had one argument david and i um that you know, there's a whole thing in Mank where he's apologizing to everybody in sight about how he didn't mean to hurt uh, Marion because he was friends with Marion Davies. And and I said to David, who's going to remember from the movie that, you know, he he, he depicted this kind of uh, not so sophisticated opera singer, you know, uh, kind of. Uh, and um, and he said, well, they'll have to go watch the movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying that's how he felt about it. He didn't really want to help the audience that way. Um, well, Except the Marion Davies that's depicted in Mank is is a complex, layered yes, character yes, yes, yes. who is both smart, also at times naive, but very intuitive and very caring toward Mankowitz, uh, toward him yeah, as a yeah. as a person who's struggling. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And and then actually TCM had they they did like a couple days of Marion Davies movies. Mm -hmm. And I, and I watched a few of them and I'm like, 
and I'd seen, I think I'm sure I've seen them before, but I was now through a whole new lens and realizing actually she was a, a good actress. Yeah, she was pretty good. I mean, she was a unique, uh, she was a comedian of a kind, you know. With, yes, with, right. With any, I guess maybe you have to say comedian, because then I don't want to make, genderize it anyway. But uh, right. uh, yeah, I think she was that. And then what happened was they were trying to put her into much more serious movies where I think she was I mean, like Marie Antoinette and things like that. Right, that became right. a problem. You know? Have you watched Citizen Kane since Mank? Yeah, I did. I actually watched it um, about two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, look, it's like I think part of it is just having seen certain things you've seen so many times, they just disappear and, uh, you know, sort of. But right. I, I always believed um, that great movies are, I don't even explain this, it's like sort of uh, going to the other side of the moon where the sort of lives are still being lived, that the Godfather still lives on, you know what I'm saying? All these things have the, some reality to them as if they're, they're, they have a life of their own. Um, and the great ones do, um, where you can still imagine uh, somehow this is, it was real, you know, when they're all, they're, they're not, you know? Um, I remember uh, I, you mentioned Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which I think was a complicated movie and worked for some people, not for others. But um, uh, 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 James Gandolfini was in it. And I remember walking in to meet him for the first time to you know, go over what we had written. And I sort of stopped because there was Tony Soprano, you know what I'm saying? And he said, right. don't do that, he said to me. Right. No. <laughs> he wanted to have his and own he- persona, you know. Right. And so you got to know him and you knew that he was he was actually just very sweet. Yes, exactly. Very wonderful uh, human being. Yeah. Well, it's um, actually now that you brought brought it up and we I'm going to come back and I have some more questions about Mank, but extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, so you said some people it worked, some people it didn't work. Well, I, I guess was one of those people where it really worked. I love that. I love that. Oh, well, I've got to oh, tell you that most Eric. of the audiences we I watched it with who, you know, we do a Q&A or something after really loved it. And I, I was kind of surprised that it then got, it didn't get great reviews. We did get nominated for Best Picture, so that was nice. Um, uh, I think what, what some people didn't like, and I'm not blaming the, this young boy, but um, the director made a decision, Stephen Daldry, who's a wonderful, wonderful man and director. Yeah, um, correct. He, he saw a little thing in the book that said that the boy was on that, like, Asperger spectrum, you know. Uh, mm. and, and he went and got a kid who had Asperger's, you know. And mm. some people, I think, just didn't want to watch that, you know. I think it's mm. hard for them. Um, wow, that's, that's too bad. Kind of too bad for them. Yeah, exactly how I felt. Yeah. Um, well, let me say this, because I, I have a couple questions I want to ask yeah, you about the ahead. film. Uh, but just to set it up for people who haven't seen it. And first of all, I would please ask all supporters and lovers of this podcast to please watch this film. I'm sure you missed it when it came out. Um, I, I'm, I, I will post where it's available here on my podcast page so that you can, whether it's you get it on Amazon or, or Netflix or whatever these days. Basically, this film is set. It's a story of a nine year old boy who loses his father in the 9-11 attacks. His dad, I believe, worked in the World Trade Center. And there's an answering machine message that's left behind. And there's also a key. There's a key that his father has left behind. And and there's no saying where it is to or from or whatever, but it's obviously a key to something in New York City. And so the boy goes on a mission 
uh, because somehow he believes there will be some reconnection with his father once he unlocks the lock that this key belongs to. Very good author, uh, John- Jonathan Safran Fair wrote it. Um, Absolutely, it's a yes. Book, and it's uh, the book is very funny, very touching, and uh, uh, the I, I think one of the problems, and this is a problem with movies, and to some extent. I'll give you another example. There's a great humor in the book and there's an irony and everything else, but sometimes when things are too real, they lose some of that. And I'll give you a catch 22 is a perfect example because mm. old when you read the book, it, even when a guy's head was chopped off, like with pr- pr- propeller, when yeah. you saw that in the movie, it's not quite so funny. You know? Not so funny. You're right about that. Jeez. I saw that as a teenager, uh, and I did not remember saying to myself, "Wow, that was really cool." Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> that was, but um, another Mike Nichols film. So, in his journey across the five boroughs to find, I don't, God knows how many like millions of locks there are in yeah. New York City. Yeah. Um, he runs across this elderly man who's played by Max von Sydow, and the great, great. Uh, a Swedish uh, actor um, who I first saw again as a teenager in uh, uh, an Ingmar Bergman film. Sure. And uh, he, he played the leading role in the seventh seal. He has, he also had a small role in wild strawberries. And then my friends, you've seen him in everything uh, over the years uh, playing the villain in many films he's best remembered. I think by the public as the priest that gets tossed out the window in the exorcist and also as the uh, CIA assassin in Three Days of the Condor yep. with Robert Redford. Chilling. Uh, this is one of our greatest actors of all time, and sadly, he passed away in March. I, I you know, I, he never won an Oscar, and I had on my little, like, New Year's list this January to, um, as an Academy member, as a former member of the Board of Governors, to write my letter of nomination for a special honorary Oscar. Uh, he for was him. nominated for Extremely Loud, actually. Oh, yeah. No, he was nominated. He's been nominated. Yeah. But but yeah. 90 years old, yeah. never one of our great actors and international actors of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I sadly, he passes away and uh, it, it doesn't happen. Uh, and they don't give these uh, po- posthumously. So... Anyway, so he plays the elderly man who essentially becomes a, a partner in crime with the young nine-year-old in trying to find the secret to why his dad uh, left this key behind. Okay, I want to ask you this. This movie stayed with me for months. Mm-hmm. When you were writing this, and again, yes, you were adapting it from this, uh, from this book by Jonathan, who's, uh, as you said, sure. a great writer. Yeah. So this came out in 2011. All right, so that's 10 years after 9-11. Still, I'm sure a lot of people felt, oh, I don't know if I can handle this too soon, whatever. And and while this wasn't billed as a 9-11 movie, because everything in the movie essentially happens after 9-11, with the exception of this uh, phone call, um, what was this like for you? You're a native New Yorker. Um, the country is still in not only disarray, but we have falsely gone to war against a country that had nothing, nothing to do with it. Yeah. I, with I, 9-11. I know the whole thing was uh, a mess. <laughs> I mean, it was like, 
I, I, I mean, I had in mind, is this too early for this movie? And maybe it was actually, maybe people weren't ready to really absorb some of the things that had to be talked about. Um, I think the grief was so palpable about, about the whole, I mean, it was such a, such a shock to the body, I guess, politic you say, or but to the whole body of America that, um, yeah. first of all, that we were that vulnerable, I guess, but also this kind of, surreal way to kill people by taking planes into buildings, you know? So the whole thing took on uh, such another life of, um, uh, 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 I think it took everybody out of some kind of uh, false comfort, I guess would be the right word. Um, and it certainly did for me. I mean, I've had that twice, I think, in writing experiences. Uh, that was one, certainly. And the other was when I was on Munich, um, have mm -hmm. such mixed emotions about one day the PLO would blow up a school bus with kids in it, right? And I, yeah. as a Jew also, I'd say, fuck them, let's kill every one of them. And then, you know, you'd say, well, you're doing what exactly what you say you shouldn't do. You know, you're, it becomes a, a, a nightmare of, of slaughter for everybody. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't know what the end result is been in the movie i don't think comes up with an end result you know uh, well actually this was my next question after extremely loud and incredibly close because this isn't the only time you deal with those twin towers and again this scene in munich you've got the two actors that are there the, the main actor eric banna uh who's the assassin the israeli assassin and the, uh, the other actor and they're having this conversation there in roosevelt island about Eric Bana feels a lot of guilt and a lot of, you, I don't know what, and, but he knows that harm is going to come because of what he did in killing people that did not get their day in court, that did not get to defend themselves. And, um, and it wasn't good enough for him. Yeah, no, it wasn't good enough for him to say, well, the people in the Olympic village didn't get to defend themselves. Doesn't matter. We, we don't, we hold ourselves to a higher standard than a potential murderer. So th this is the, I mean, this is the beauty of this film, the complexity of it that, you know, you're supposed to feel all during the film. Yeah, yeah, kill him, kill him. And then how long can you hold that up? Kill him, kill him. And then now, now civilians are starting to get killed in these assassination attempts and things are happening. And Eric Bana, the lead character, is having qualms about if he's really part of a democracy, if he's really part of a free country, is this what we do? Just assassinate people? It's, it's a powerful moment, and it's, it's really kind of, it's at the end of the film. Don't worry, it's not a spoiler. It's just the big philosophical questions are now being asked about the way that the Israelis and the Americans do business. And just have a listen to this. Did I commit murder? I want you to give me proof that everyone we killed had a hand in Munich. I don't discuss such things with people who don't exist. You want to discuss? Come back to existence. You want your daughter to grow up in exile. I want evidence. Professor Hamshari with a beautiful wife and child. He was implicated in a failed assassination attempt on Ben-Gurion. He was recruiting for Fatah France. You stopped him. We should have tried to bring him to Israel. As I ate you're a harmless little writer in Rome. He was behind the bomb on LL Flight 76 in 1968. He was working on another bomb last August. I could go on and on with According this According to evidence nobody has seen. If these people committed crimes, we should have arrested them. 
like Eichmann. If these guys live, Israelis die. Whatever doubts you have, Afner, you know this is true. You did well, but you're unhappy. I killed seven men. Not Salame. We'll get him, of course. You think you were the only team? It's a big operation. You were only a part. Does that assuage your guilt? Did we accomplish anything at all? Every man we killed has been replaced by worse. Why cut my fingernails? They'll grow back. Did we kill to replace the terrorist leadership or the Palestinian leadership? You tell me what we've done. You killed them for the sake of a country you now choose to abandon. The country your mother and father built, that you were born into. You killed them for Munich, for the future, for peace. There's no peace at the end of this, no matter what you believe. You know this is true. Here's what I know. Your father is sick, your mother will be alone. You're a Sabra, your wife and daughter are Sabras. What I came to say is this. Come home. Come to my house for dinner tonight. Come on, you're a Jew, you're a stranger. It's written someplace or other that I'm meant to ask you to come and break bread with me. So? Break bread with me, Ephraim. No. As those last lines are spoken, the two characters step aside and go off frame. And what is revealed what they were standing in front of that was back in the distance are the twin towers. Right. When they've just asked the question, will we pay for this someday? Is this really the way to go to bring about peace and to stop all this violence? And then boom, they walk off and there's a, and it is a chilling moment. And then the film ends and that's that. And you walk out of that theater going, Oh, man. And, of course, it's in hindsight now because we know the Twin Towers, when we see the movie, are gone. Yes. And and you then ask the question, yes, when does this end? When does this end? And what can I, as a citizen who has no power, what can I do about it? Oh, it's so, Eric, the way you wrote that scene, the way Spielberg filmed it, and they had to digitally put in the the twin towers yeah that was uh that was uh i, I and I, I don't know if tony i don't know if it's tony kushner i i, I can't really I, I can take credit for what they talked about to some extent but i think that was steven i think and maybe tony who came up with that i uh because uh it, it wasn't on my radar <laughs> i wish it was you know what i'm saying <laughs> wow okay as i said tony tony kushner yeah. our greatest living playwright yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, no, I, I always yeah, I love Tony so much personally that I would never try to steal an inch for him. You know, I don't know if it was him or just Stephen. Well, I think Stephen may have just wanted that because he was smart, and he didn't really know what the end result of this was because I think there was internal kind of uh, he was fighting internally about how he felt about a lot of this stuff too. Good, that's what I felt. Good, we we should all fight internally. 
about how we're trying to resolve the great issues of the day. That's right. That's right. And and never take the position. Don't never be in cement. Oh yes, this has to happen. We have to do this. <laughs> and it's like, man, that hasn't gotten us very far. No, no. As humanity goes. And I just, I mean, I, I, I love. I love that you love that. I love that these were two. No, Munich was not as obscure. I like that these are the two movies that you really loved. I love that. <laughs> well, yes, and and not, of course not just that, but you know, and the insider as a documentary filmmaker who has tried to focus on uh, the evils of corporate America and the number of people that they have killed, and in this case of this movie, the tobacco industry. Yeah. And, and, and you show in the insider, you show what happens. So Al Pacino plays the, uh, 60 minutes, uh, producer. Lowell Bergman. Yes. And the whistleblower, it's going to blow the whistle on big tobacco. And I remember watching this film and, and thinking, oh, geez, you know, this is such a great thing to honor the, this whistleblower, but also they were out to destroy him, destroy him. Well, he, I gotta say that he. He was, I, I didn't even meet him until after I wrote it because I wasn't allowed to. He was um, under some kind of a court order not to talk about it. Um, and so I, but I always found it fascinating from what I could do in research and what I could figure out about him. What does a man do who is a scientist at a tobacco company? You know what I'm saying? So his personal right. integrity was a little questionable. Um, and he really was, I think he mostly was angry about the fact they wouldn't give him his pension. You know what I'm saying? And right. then you can go from there. Then I think he did, you know, I think he, he did after that, he was very brave and did the right thing. And he's a pretty incredible man, I think, for being a true whistleblower. But uh, yeah, at first, I mean, his wife, uh, his wife's family owned tobacco farms and uh, he was very torn. And as I say, he was working for Lorillard or somebody. You know? um, and that was not pretty. You know, yes. And you know what? But, but this is the case with many whistleblowers where they were part of the system for a while. Mm -hmm. The judgment that is not necessary from anybody when somebody has the bravery, because the bravery of the insider in this movie that you wrote is like, what I want a film like that to do is to encourage other whistleblowers and not to, not to just uh, show the damage and destruction that's done to the whistleblower by those in power. But, but of course we know the end of this story and, and we know, that, um, you know, people say to me all the time now, Mike, how are we ever going to get the, uh, you know, the almost 50% of the country that voted for Trump to get vaccinated? How are we going to get them to wear a mask? They think it's a political statement. And my answer to them always is, yeah, you know what? Give it some time because there is something about peer pressure and about the ones you love going and doing something different than you. And then you start to see the sanity of it. That's right. You know, I, I mean, I couldn't act. Yeah. You, I mean, you're very smart. Um, Cause I've always felt that, you know, look, I was, I was brought up as a red diaper. You know, my parents, my parents, I spent more hours in the rains seeing Ethel Rosenberg has to get out of jail. Right. Eric is, a, Eric is essentially saying that his parents were communists. Uh, they're commies. And my father, I mean, I'm not sure he thought Stalin was so bad. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's like, are you kidding, Dad? <laughs> you know? but anyway, he was pretty dyed in the wool. Right. Um, but they were American communists, though. I mean, I think they had some good ideas. You know? But um, Right. They still uh, shopped at Macy's. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. So I've, got, I've gotten to know through various work stuff. Um, 
uh, and also just this place we have in Montana and knowing a lot of red state people in quotes. Um, they all are affected the same way everybody else is if right. they have a brother who's gay or right. if they, uh, you know, sister who's gay Correct. or, you know, children who, who have uh, uh, depression or anything that anybody has, you know. And so they're affected like anybody else. So that's where I think it all comes home to roost. You know, sometimes they obviously don't vote for their own interests. And, uh, but eventually, if something happens where they realize, oh, wait a minute, I think I've been had here. I think that, you know, and they're never going to become a Democrat. <laughs> they're never going to no, call themselves no, 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 a liberal. But as I've said on this podcast before, when Billy Bob finds out that his wife, Susie Bob, is making a dollar less an hour in the cashier line than the man next to her, Bobby Bob, <laughs> is making a dollar more an hour. And Billy Bob realizes because his wife's paid a dollar less because she's not paid the same as men, that 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 they have forty dollars less a week coming in. That's when they that's when the flip happens. And again, they don't become Democrats, they don't become liberals, you know, that's right. they that's right. They, but they know what's right and wrong. They know what's fair and the injustice of that. They then will be behind any effort to make sure that women are paid the same as men That's right. in this country. And you can call that a commie pinko idea, but you know what? When Susie Bob's making $40 less a week, when she should be making that and Billy Bob knows it, Billy Bob and Susie Bob are now on board calling their members of Congress saying women vote for that bill. Women should be paid the same as men. I just, I think that in a film like The Insider, where this comes down to, we have to act as the collective, as the general, you know, majority rule, minority rights, et cetera. But sometimes it is the single individual who blows the whistle, who refuses to give up her seat uh, at the front of the bus. You know, it's sometimes it's that one person. Yeah. And massive historical change occurs as and you captured that so well uh in 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 the insider and um man that i don't know well as a red diaper baby now and now an adult getting to write a film like that were your parents still alive when the, when the insider uh came out um my parents were my now i gotta think my mother was not um your mother was gone no, my so. mom was gone my father was alive yeah i would think they would be so I mean, they were already so proud of you. You'd already won your Oscar. You'd already written Forrest Gump. You'd already done all this. They weren't things. wild about Forrest Gump. <laughs> they weren't wild. Of, why? Because it was, uh, uh, they, you know, they, I think they, they, a lot of things for liberals in quotes, or they don't sometimes don't have a sense of humor about, you know, <laughs> themselves, for instance. Oh, uh, no, I know. Now I know exactly what you, but, but you see, see why I like that sort of, well, I like the way that you wrote, wrote those scenes and the protest scenes of Vietnam and all this is is because i am bored by a movie where if i can see five minutes ahead of time where eric roth is going with this because eric roth is a good liberal so he's going to treat this in the good liberal fashion now i may agree with you but i'm bored to death and i didn't come to the movies to get an education about being a liberal right i i am there to be entertained to think to uh, laugh my ass off to get angry at the human condition, whatever it is. That's why I'm at the movies. And, and no, I'm, I'm sorry that you took uh, that kind of heat 
uh, no, I, I, it wasn't a heat. They were they're generous people, but I know in their heart of hearts, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Which was fine. They were thrilled that I won the Oscar. They were, you know, I actually had a, a funny faux pas that when I got the Oscar, I, I kind of lost my geography a little bit. And, and I pointed up, they, they happened to be in the balcony, but I pointed up, said, I said to my parents up there, well, everybody assumed they were dead, you know? So they were, everybody called to say, I didn't know your parents had died. Oh, that's hilarious. Cause they always do that when you have your deceased parents and you win something yeah. and you look up, you look, yeah, you look upward heavenward. Yeah. Heavenward. But seriously, I don't know what, what arena that was in, in 94, that 95, was in the shrine auditorium is in the shrine auditorium. Okay. I'm just as a director now saying I, the eye line uh, was just fine. Wherever you were looking, you were not looking up to heaven. It's not like you're in the Kodak theater where you've got the, the, fifth, right. the fifth balcony. I think I pointed though. <laughs> it's the, it's the point. The point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, okay. Well, they, I mean, I think that, um, I think the, the various, um, um, antagonists that you choose, uh, in these films, uh, you approach it, um, with, a lot of nuance and a lot of complexity and a lot of, of layeredness, which makes it a great movie. And I don't know how to, maybe you can do a job. If you <laughs> explaining this, maybe you can explain this better than the way I just did, because if you're teaching writing to students, uh, the, the, um, the importance of this, and, I, and when it comes to politics and I, whenever they let me speak to students, um, I tell them, that uh, when it comes to making a documentary film, especially one like mine, the art is more important than the politics. And by the art, I mean the cinema yes. of it. Yeah. The cinema of it, because you may get across your politics by making your point. There's the pointy finger. But but if you haven't made a good movie, yeah. if, you, if you didn't set out to make a great movie, then the politics are going to be lost. I mean, some people are going to hate the politics. Yeah. You've, you've worked against yourself because you didn't put the movie first. You put your political statement first. And I always encourage against that and tell people, if you make a great movie, you will, the, the, the politics that you want to convey will be massive. Oh, it'll be so great. But, but you, because you focused on making a good movie first. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a perfect jump for me for this, uh, blessing that I got to be able to write that which you gave such a nice introduction to uh, killers of the flower moon that Marty starts literally I got a text from him today saying we start in like eight days uh, wow and um, it's like to me like oh my god how did I get this I mean it's like a, a story I knew nothing about um, just to give a brief synopsis 1921 um, Osage nation live in horrible land in Oklahoma so they're forced to they have their own trail of tears and they're the, probably the poorest people as a group in America. And they discover oil and they become one of the richest groups in the world. And um, they behave with people do who got money. They buy, get McMansions and white uh, servants and uh, enjoy their lives immensely and uh, all the good fruits that come with some money. And uh, into that comes every creep, killer, con man. 184 of them are killed for their money, and it's it's a very complicated story about one particular family, um, and that, and then into that comes a Texas Ranger who was in the first class of the FBI to try to find if he could find some justice, and uh, there is a modicum of justice, but uh, 
as I say in the script, which I think was somebody said that they to find 12 white jurors to convict a white man of uh, killing a, a Native American, you have a better chance of have, uh, convicting him of kicking his dog. Mm. And that was true to that point. And then they, they actually, you know, I won't spoil what happens, but um, it's quite a piece. And it's, I think uh, 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 it's a Western of a kind, like uh, it has all the feelings of a Western. And, and I think it's going to be uh, something, as I said recently for the ages, I really do. I mean, I think Marty is about to make a movie. It'll probably be the last of its kind. I can promise you that. Um, Why do you say that? Well, I don't think they're going to make big dramas that way. I mean, they'll make, uh, you know, the action, the Marvel movies, all the kind of exciting things people like to see. But this one, <clears throat> you know, this kind of grand storytelling with um, with a social mm. content, um, uh, you know, underneath it, which is what's wonderful, which you brought up about, it, it comes along with it. I mean, uh, I'll give you a movie I always love, but if you go watch it again, it's really kind of clunky, is tech, uh, is giant. But it has oh, all these yes. kind of wonderful things in it with, you know, uh, yes. James Dean. And then, of course, uh, they're playing the Yellow Rose of Texas as uh, uh, Rock Hudson in a fight with uh, somebody to protect his, you know, his uh, Hispanic grandchild, you know. And right. uh, but anyway, those are those are kind of movies they did make. I don't think they make to me. And this one, I think, will be the first. Uh, I mean, there are made there have been Native American movies, but that will be the cast is predominantly Native American. Um, when you look at a street scene, you'll see eighty percent Native Americans as right Caucasians. And uh, now, uh, so so De Niro, as I said, gave me the gave me the book. Yeah, uh, this is you know over a year ago now. And I read it right away, and I oh, I'm and then to hear that you were writing the screenplay, Scorsese was directing it, De Niro and DiCaprio. Oh my God! You think those days are over? I don't know how they're going to get money to make huge movies like this, and you know, particularly with the day and date stuff, with uh, you know, releasing things. I think there, uh, this will certainly attract people. I think Marty got a great deal somehow with where they're going to have it released by paramount for x amount of time i don't know how long and then it'll go on apple streaming they're the ones who are paying for most of it and or almost all of it and uh it'll be great on apple streaming i'm sure it'll bring in subscribers why not who, who doesn't want to see leonardo and marty Scorsese? well but okay now we have to talk about this because uh you just made my heart skip a beat here because the movies post-pandemic where are we going to be? And you, you must have thought about this. I thought, I've thought well, about I, it. I feel, I feel partially it's silly to feel responsible, but because something else would have done it. But Fincher and I, and a man named Josh Donnan, began House of Cards. And I wasn't really smart enough. David kind of felt it that the eyeballs were going to go a certain place, and streaming became and it. wasn't It wouldn't have been my choice. Not that I don't want as many people to watch something, but that I love going to the movies from the time I was eight years old, going with my grandfather who spoke nothing but Russian, who just come over from Russia. And, uh, you know, he spoke Yiddish to me, and we sat in the Brooklyn Paramount with, with the stars on the ceiling in the balcony watching the first War of the World. You know what I'm saying? Where I would go all the time. I'd go two, three times a week. It was just mm. refuge and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, they call movies bigger than life and television they call smaller. And uh, I'm not sure that's true anymore. I think some of the great things we've seen there in television, short story writing and all that. But um, 
I think I think that look, we just lost the Cinerama Dome, um, which I'll, yes. I'll tell you a story out of school, and I'm not advocating anybody do this. And if you feel you should cut it out, you can cut it out. Um, okay. Uh, I remembered as one of my memorable movie experiences going to see uh, 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 2001 Space Odyssey in 1968, I think it was. And my wife and I both took acid and we sat through the first three three showings of it. And then 50 years later, I went and sat in the same seat with a friend who I won't mention. We did acid again and <laughs> sat through it a couple times, you know. But there'll be no more Cinerama Domes. That's gone, you know. So, uh, and uh, uh, those years are gone. Yeah, so I don't know that communal experience. I miss it so much. I I miss that, I think, as much as anything during the pandemic, not being able to go to a movie. But what, so what can people like you and I do to make sure that that we're able to keep making these movies? Maybe we have to think differently. Well, I think you're in a great, you're in a great place. I think documentaries are, that's a whole other world. Where now you, I think the documentaries may be actually the best movies. Uh, I mean, I'd recommend to people go see this movie Time. Have you seen this? Um, yes. Oh no, it's uh, or, the, the best. or the or the other side of the coin in a way. <clears throat> this movie, the my octopus teacher. I'm unbelievable. Unbelievable. Again. I mean, a biped yeah. becomes your friend, you know. Yeah. And I remember yeah. you because you mentioned Ali. I remember saying to Michael Mann, the director. You, we can't make a better movie than when we when we, we were kings, you know. So we will try, but we can't top it. And I mm. I'm not sure we did. I mean, in other words, that movie had something that was uh, some kind of alchemy about that man um, that captured it. And uh, I think we did something else that was pretty extraordinary with the Cohen to the Crow stuff. You know, Eric. Uh, in uh, speaking of the Academy Awards, if I could just take a second here to give a shout out to our underwriter today. It's actually the film that you had mentioned nominated this year for best documentary and it's called time. Now, all of you uh, listening to this, you just heard Eric Roth mention this movie, uh, one of the best documentaries of the year. Everybody's talking about it. Um, it's also the feature documentary debut of a talented young filmmaker. Her name is Garrett Bradley and she has accomplished something profound. She has made both a beautiful love story, but also a powerful film about America's cruel and racist prison industrial complex. Bradley paints a mesmerizing portrait of the resilience and radical love necessary to prevail over the endless separations caused by this country's mass incarceration epidemic. This is truly one of the best movies, not just documentaries this year, but one of the best movies. So do yourself a favor, watch Time on Prime. I'll have a link to the film right here on the description page of this podcast, of this episode. And again, I want to thank Amazon Studios. These are the film people at Amazon, and they have made some great films over the last few years. And I want to thank them for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice and supporting the work of talented filmmakers, women like Garrett Bradley and her excellent film, Time. And while we're at it, Eric, if you just don't mind another second here, I want to thank and give a shout out to our great underwriter, SignalWire. SignalWire is a remote communication platform for people who like to actually, you know, communicate online. We can see each other. We've all been doing that for the last year, but SignalWire has come up with something incredible in terms of its quality of sound, of picture. Recently, when a, a major TV studio needed to figure out how to have their actors 
remotely record their lines. They use signal wire. So there was virtually no sound or video lag, which allowed them to keep the production, the filming moving. It's amazing how during this pandemic that we now have something like this. And it's because of signal wires, great design. It's also great if you just want to have an informal communication with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, sometimes, you know, the best ideas come from these random unplanned conversations that you have with creative people, the creative people that you work with. So people in the film industry, if you're listening, take notice of this. I know many of you have already, you know what signal wire is. And I want the public to know what signal wire is because it's going to be a big part of our future. And because signal wire loves rumble, I want all of you rumble listeners to sign up before April 30th at signalwire.com with the code more M O O R E. That's somebody, you know, and signal wire will buy lunch for your first team meeting. All the people you got on the screen with you there, they'll buy lunch. Now don't forget terms and conditions do apply. Uh, so read, read the fine print that signalwire.com and use the code more M O O R E signal wire S I G N A L wire W Y R E one word signalwire.com. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Uh, can I tell a tale out of school here? Can I just reveal uh, something that I really haven't spoken much about, but during this year where I've been pretty much contained uh, here in my home, Instead of climbing the walls, I decided to do a number of things. I, first of all, I, I just started this podcast, so I got to I got to do this two or three times a week, which has been uh, exhilarating to me. But I also decided that it was time to write fiction, to write some feature films, and and so I started uh, on two screenplays, maybe I don't know eight eight nine months ago, and I have to tell you. I, that I forget if it was Picasso or some great artist who said that um, fiction is a lie, uh, but that in telling the lie, you tell sometimes greater truths yeah. than if you were watching or reading nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And and that has been the case with me in writing, which I'm in the process of these well, two screenplays. You're welcome to send them me. I'll tear you apart. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome to send them, though. <laughs> No, 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 no. I, I, I will take you up on well, that. Uh, no, we have a note factory here. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Remember, I, I, not, you don't know this, but I was raised by nuns. I mean, I went to Catholic schools, and I, very at a very early age, became well, uh, well equipped to deal with uh, all sorts of criticism. But um, no, but but I think this, uh, this. Do you know what I'm trying to describe? Because you're talking essentially. I mean, you, you asked me about writing. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what motivates me every morning. I mean, I, I can sit and I can go take a, you know, it's almost, I can go take a journey, a place I've never been, see, meet people I've never met, you know. And, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah. And I'm, I feel released by it in some ways. I, yeah, I, um, I think it's wonderful. It uh, no, I will, when I'm ready, I, I will, I will send these to you. I'll tell you a truth about me. Um, which I've said before, but I think I'm a frustrated novelist. I've never written a novel, you know, so 
What do I, what am I waiting for? What am I afraid of? You know, and I haven't done it. Well, what are you? What are know. you? I'm 76 and I, I've always enjoyed young. That's young. 76 yeah. is the new well, 56. For, yeah. You say, except for if I had a heart attack, this very moment, people would say, well, you're 76. You know what I'm People have heart attacks at 56. I know, I'm telling you. I know, you know what I'm saying. No, anyway. No, I know, but no, but seriously, I did, I did read, a, I, re, I read you and I know you were making a joke where somebody was talking uh, to you and you know, what a wonder, wonderful writer you are. And you said, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a writer in the, in the, in the interviewer said, what do you mean by that? Well, he says, I, I, you said, I write screenplays and the, the page is not filled up oh, no, <laughs> with it, words. It's these dots <laughs> and dashes and ellipses and, you know, right. You're not a poet. I, mean, I always felt it was a bastardized form. It's a, I think you can be great at it and you can be an artist at it even, but I'm not sure, as I said, said to you earlier, whether it's a great art, I don't know. Maybe, as I think, the artful. I think it's a great craft. And um, it's such a combination of things. And what value is it once you print it out if they don't put it on the screen? You know, any kind of screen. Right. So, but can you understand me? And, and I'm, you know, obviously 10 I don't know, years younger than you, but I, there is this thing in me that I want to, you say you want to write your novel and you haven't written it. I want to write my Forrest Gump. I want to write, you know, my uh, extremely loud and incredible. Oh, you will. I'm sure you will look at the, I mean, look at the vision you had for the things you did. I mean, you, I mean, I, I remember that having never had met you, but like Bowling for Columbine, I yes. thought you captured something about that. I put aside all the second amendment stuff. Um, you captured something about the quality of the reality of that, um, that uh, was never going to go away. And, you know, I don't know what, I don't even know what the sociopathy of the whole thing is. If there's such a word. Mm. But that, uh, that these kids seemed almost live a kind of normal life. Part of that is because I'm just always thinking the story we're being told is not the whole story. I think you'll find, I, I will give you one thing you'll find. Yeah. I didn't know this about my own work, but you'll find that, that you will repeat things which will start revealing who you are and which i think mm. is great um, but you don't may not even recognize it so there was a critic named elvis mitchell who used to write for the new york times a very sure. smart man he does a podcast like you for i think npr on, on the yes. movies and he said to me um your movies are about loneliness i said really and i thought yeah. about it and i think he's right i think that every one of my movies is about loneliness and so i'm obviously coping with that in some way which i wasn't even aware of so I have no problem with that. And I'll just try to be more poetic about it or something. But that, I, I mean, it does, I guess it keeps moving me to try to sort of find a home or something, you know. The Columbine killers, um, when they started the shooting, and uh, they, had, they were skipping their fourth hour AP French philosophy class. Right, right. That, that's who they were. The, the man uh, on the top floor of the Las Vegas Hotel spraying machine gun bullets on the uh, festival crowd below a few years ago right. was a multimillionaire. Mm. This is what always fascinates me, this thing of this part of the story. And this is what, what you, what I was explaining at the end of Munich that you and Spielberg, you had these complicated characters that told me many more truths and forced me to ask questions uh, that I never would have asked. That's the kind of you know writing I want to do, and so when I've started this fiction writing, I've actually I feel like I'm released in a way because I can tell these truths by painting a picture. Mm -hmm. It's my picture. Yes. That, but I'm not necessarily telling my truths. I'm telling these other truths that are there 
that sometimes we as the public don't want to see. So I'll tell and you, I, I had an opportunity, and I, I, was, I warned you I was going to mention this, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had an opportunity through oddball circumstances to become very close with, the, I think, one of the great American writers, Dennis Johnson. Uh, yes. He wrote, you know, Angels in America. And uh, of course, for most people don't know who he is, but he was one of our real poets. And um, he was so uh, dogged about the fact that the characters took him, you know, and once he figured out who they were, then he was on their journey. And to be able to do that is really hard, but to, to stay true to that. Mm. And he would, uh, somebody, I know Michael Cimino, the, the kind of interesting director who did, um, uh, you know, deer, deer hunter and uh, amongst others. And, uh, uh, he, um, I did a rewrite for him on a movie called, uh, uh year of the drag with Mickey Rourke. And, yep. but I saw that he had prepared and I, I'm just giving this a piece of advice. He prepared for Mickey Rourke, a wallet that had all the appropriate things in it for this particular character, his draft card, his pictures of him in Vietnam, his daughter, his ex-wife, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Fortune from a fortune cookie mentioned him and Mickey Rourke never looked at it, but he had it in his back pocket and he knew this is that person. So I, I always say to writers, uh, screenwriters and writers know this probably by anyway, that, you know, everybody's got to have a distinctive voice, have their own psychology, that they all be individuals. And uh, that's the way they'll become, you know, real people. And so uh, I hope you're doing that with your scripts. <laughs> I am. I'm probably doing too much of it. You know, one thing I that I try to when I've taught various camera people that I've, I've worked with is that sometimes the most important thing that's happening in a nonfiction film is not what's directly in the lens, but in your peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. So try to keep keep your one eye in the lens, but try to keep the other eye open. Well, the same the same thing holds true with fiction writing, um, even if it's an adaptation that. The best writing is subtextual writing. It's the hardest. Uh, and great yeah. writers can do it. So they write about what's happening without writing about what's happening. You know, the sort of more clunky, obvious writers are doing sort of like telling you what's going on when you can see what's going on. Um, but, you know, so for somebody talking about, let's say, loneliness, and they're talking about uh, a chicken they had met, you know what I'm saying, who was on right. a bus or on an airplane when he was flying alone in Russia, et cetera. Um, you all of a sudden can paint a picture and tell the same story. Well, let me say just before we end here, first of all, your star is born the latest one here that uh, won um, various awards and uh, an Oscar for that song is the best star is born. Ah. They made this film since the 1930s and you nailed it. And well, it, was, it um, was kind of a revelation for maybe in this sense, because I hadn't had a movie made in a, two or three years, I guess maybe and uh, I started to feel maybe age has caught up with me a little bit. And uh, Bradley offered me this. I, I wasn't as keen about the first version they had put together. And I said, I, I really need to kind of go off and you and I, and uh, if Lady Gaga's willing, you know, let's see what we can, you know, devise here. And, but it also brought me back to, uh, uh, it's a longer story about uh, years I spent with many musicians like Jim, Jim Morrison and Jerry Garcia and stuff. And I love music. And, it sort of, I think, rekindled my, you know, passion for, you know, what, what was that all about? What was the 70s about? Music? All that stuff. So it was a joy to be able to be part of something modern and new and also mm. to have this, you know, the backbone being music. And 
even though you're still stuck with the same storytelling, he had to die at the end. Yeah, but I'm telling you, it was genius. It didn't pull its punch. And 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 when they sang that song at the Oscars. I know it was a live show, but were they going to have sex on that piano? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I don't was, know. I mean, these are. It didn't get cut out, did it? I mean, no, it was no, like. I was there, so I, I never saw anything. That, okay. I okay. clothing remained on. <laughs> and then listen, just get, as we leave, give us a piece of hope post pandemic. It's called Dune. You've written the new Dune. Well, I'm one of the writers. Um, I mean, I, I wrote my big sort of hallucinogenic version. Uh, the director who I adore, I did some rewriting on, uh, um, I, I, what was it called? Uh, his other science fiction movie. That's where we became friendly. Arrival. Um, and he, uh, he said, go take a crack at it and see what you want to do. And I, I, I had, I said, I'm going to just go for broke. And I did. <laughs> it's like, I started the movie, which is no longer in the movie. I started the movie with uh, like, and God created earth. Right. And we have this whole Genesis, but it's not, mm. but it's of the planet Dune, So weird animals and everything. And then he said to me, it's magnificent, but now we have to pay for the rest of the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> um, uh, I think I, I gave them a, a great soulful and very far, far sort of thinking version. And I think he needed to cut it down, which he did. And they brought in a, Nice writer named John Spade who did some work on it too and made it sort of stand on its own two feet. And I think uh, what I've seen, I think it's pretty special. I think they had to get there for a while. They had some work to do, um, but they now have something that I don't want to say Lord of the Rings, but maybe, you know, it's wow. pretty special. So it's, it's done now. It's, it's done. done. Yeah, it's done. And I, it's coming out in October. In uh, October. Yeah, it'll be probably a couple, three weeks in a theater, and that would be fun to see it because it's really so beautiful. And you, 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 I, would, I would think you'd have to see this yeah, in a movie. I think, I think they can, and then they can catch HBO Max has it then. Right. Wow. So, Eric, thank you. Uh, Oscar-winning screenwriter Eric Roth and nominated for the Oscars this April right now as producer of Mank. Great film. Go see it. Thank you for uh, being part of this. And don't be afraid to send me the right notes. Uh, no, those, those notes. I, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll drop a name, but I, out of the blue, Frank Ocean, who I think is a pretty talented guy. Yeah. Singer. He's writing kind of more of like a visual album. And he said, would you give me notes on, you know, this kind of thing I'm writing? I said, I'll be glad to, but I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I'm not going to hurt your feelings, but you know, I'll tell you what I think works for me anyway. And he was great. I mean, he was, he took it like, he took it like a grown up. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, we've never heard from Frank again. So no, Frank's done. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, 
Yeah. He's fine. He's just, Eric, become, Eric Roth. Become a lake. He's Frank, Frank Lake now. Yes, Frank. Eric, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. This, nice is, this is Michael Moore, and this, my friends, is Rumble. Thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, and our editor, Nick Quaz. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.